0: Hello, good evening. Welcome to our Thursday night Bible study. The last one in July, and actually the last one for a couple of weeks. We're going to take August as a break from our Thursday night Bible studies, it's, um, and we'll pick them up again at the beginning of September. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians, so why don't you get a Bible and look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 10 to 17. Um, uni- unity, united we stand. So far in the letter it's been a generally positive introduction and now Paul is responding to specific information that he has received about the problems at the Corinthian church and that information has reached Paul by two routes when we get to chapter 7 and verse 1 we see that Paul has received that information from the Corinthians themselves they'd written to him asking him for their sorry asking him for his input and guidance on some controversial issues, some confusion in the church. But if you look at, at chapter one and verse 11, you see that the information has come from another route. Some of Chloe's people, probably members of the Corinthian church, presumably, they've been with Paul and um, they've been eyewitnesses to the problems that were plaguing the Corinthian congregations. So Paul is responding to the Corinthians letter, but he's responding to first and accounts of real issues in the church. It's fascinating that of all the many and varied problems confronting the Corinthian churches, that number one on Paul's list, the first thing he wants to address is the problem of division and disunity. Division and disunity, that's our theme in these verses 10 to 17. As we read them together, I want you to listen out for two things. First of all, Look, look, just look out for Paul's diagnosis, the problem that needs to be solved, the problem of division. And then listen out, secondly, for Paul's treatment, if you like, the principle that we must apply, which comes out, especially when you think about the, those rhetorical questions in verse 12 that Paul asks the Corinthians. It comes out as well if you look at Paul's example. Verses thirteen to seventeen. So the two issues we'll be looking at tonight: um, what are, you know, what is you know, listen out for the problem and listen out for the remedy. Really. So let's read it together. That's one Corinthians one and verse ten. Um, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised None of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The problem to be avoided. Human society is riven, isn't its is, is torn asunder by division. We are fragmented and divided along lines of race, class, education, culture, economics, religion, politics, how to deal with the coronavirus, a thousand other things besides. Well, unity is the desire of our hearts, but we have to confess that it's at a perpetually elusive goal. So it's no surprise to discover that division and disunity is a problem that is not only out there, but from time to time in here in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the problem to be avoided at Corinth. You see that if you look at verses 11 and 12. They're quarreling, bickering about the respective merits of their party. And what Paul calls in verse 10 divisions, well, the word is that he uses in the original is the word where we get schisms from. There are schisms that are tearing the church asunder and there are two factors in particular that call these that causes these dreadful tears in the fabric of the Corinthian fellowship. In the first place in verse 12 there is the cult of personality and secondly standing behind that is the cult of pride. The cult of personality the cult of personal pride, and both are there in verse 12. Let's have a look at the cult of personality first. There are four groups, each claiming to be the standard bearers for a particular much-loved leader, and in one case, the the creator himself. There are four groups that claim to be the standard bearers for a particular leader or an approach to the Christian life. You've got, first of all, the Paul party. Paul who's writing this letter. Paul, the great apostle. Paul, you remember, was the one who founded the church. And these folks in the Paul party are claiming to be the stalwart defenders of Paul and his original vision. They would probably say something like, we're the Paul people. We're loyal to the good old days, the good old ways. We're traditionalists. They're the expressions probably found on their lips. Then you have the Apollos party. We know about Apollos from Acts 18 and verse 24. He came from Alexandria and Luke in Acts tells us that he was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And Apollos obviously made his way, according to Luke, through Acacia to the city of Corinth. And there we're told that he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He he powerfully refuted the Jews in public by showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So Apollos is a great preacher. He's a skilled orator. He's a passionate, dynamic expositor of the Bible. And the church in Corinth had been blessed through his preaching. Apollos was the great through whom this party measured every other ministry and everyone else's Christian life. And when I talk about these parties, these parties had nothing to do with it. These are the people who claim to be speaking for them. So speak, Paul speaks about himself and Apollos in the founding of the Corinthian church in chapter 3 and verse 6. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So the first wave of gospel ministry in Corinth came through the apostle Paul. And then the second wave was through this powerful expositor, Apollos. God blessed both men's ministries and caused the church to grow. But there were those in the church who were looking back at Paul and Apollos and claiming that each one was the paradigm, the lens through which to view everyone else's work and worship, convictions, style, attitudes and stance. Thirdly, you have the Peter Party. This is another group that comes from within the Corinth Fellowship. At some point, apparently various members had moved to Corinth, who were influenced not by Paul or Apollos, but by Peter, Cephas. They didn't know Paul's ministry or Apollos' ministry. For for them, Peter was the bee's knees. And then you have the Jesus party. And these are the people who say, you know, the holy of them now, no creed but Christ crowd. They pretend to be every, above everyone else. You people are all squabbling about Apollos and Paul and Peter, but we're the Jesus people. We've got it right. So there's this growing rift between these different groups, people using the names of Paul, Apollos and Peter and even our Lord Jesus, like brand names, like labels and badges, not simply to identify a set of convictions, but to belittle others who don't share them. But behind all of that is this cult of personal pride. Listen again to the text. There is one thing in Corinth that unites them. There's one thing that they all have in common. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. What they have in common is not their leader, but their ego. They seek to enlist their leader, attach their own names to the names of their chosen one in order to attach themselves to the glory of this figure, that they may make them feel good. You know know what it's like. I follow Dr. So-and-so. We've all heard people do it. Drop a name here, name dropping, to establish your own credentials, letting folks know that you're on first name terms with that preacher or that preacher or that book writer or that leader. You know how it goes. Dr. So-and-so was saying to me the other day, blah, 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 blah. It's not about Dr. So-and-so. It's about me. You know, when when they say, I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, behind that is their personal pride, and it's tearing the church apart. But there's a call to unity in verse 10. There's not only the depth of the problem, but the heights of the unity to which they were called. Now you see the dimensions of the challenge before them in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The word united is an interesting word. It was one, a word used of fishermen mending their torn nets, used for a shoulder that was dislocated, that was snapped back into its socket. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians that don't be torn apart by schism, but be mended and knit together in love. Not to be a church whose members are out of joint, whose noses are put out. But one that is whole, mobile, energized, ready for action. And notice how far that unity is to penetrate. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that phrase, all of you agree, is best translated that you all say the same thing, confess the same truths, share the same convictions. Their unity is not the product of some doctrinal minimalism where you find the lowest common denominator and look the other way on questions of truth, just so that we can all get along. And nor is it the product of ecclesiastical formalism, which is imposing an external structure to maintain unity where there is no unity. But their unity is founded on this common commitment to the truth confessed and preached in their midst. And it goes deeper than that, of course. It's not as though they were to say, well, I'll keep my own counsel privately. No, unity doesn't only touch what you say, but how you think. And Paul wants the Corinthians to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. They're to discipline their minds, submit even their private judgments to the authority of the word of God and to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is a thorough going, deep root and branch, heart and head, tongue, unity. So do you see the problems, the dimensions of the problem facing the Corinthians? Division fueled by ego is easy. And unity, the kind that Paul is calling them to, calling us to, is in a tremendously high standard of Christian unity and it is Hard work. It's a tough call, this is, to hear from the apostle. So, secondly, principles of unity, the remedy, if you like, because God, thank the Lord that Paul doesn't leave us with the problem and a command to do better. He comes with a principle, a treatment that will shatter our divisions and establish our unity. Look at verse 13. They're all boasting about their favorite preachers and look at how Paul responds to that. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptised in the name of Paul? Three rhetorical questions. Remember I said that at the beginning. Think about these questions and all of them demand a negative answer. No, Paul, Christ is not divided. No, Paul wasn't crucified for us. No, we're not baptised in the name of Paul. And the force of that is to redirect our gaze away And back to Christ, away from the favourite leaders and away back from ourselves onto Christ. We have a whole Christ or no Christ at all. Christ is one. We who follow him must be one also. Paul wasn't crucified for us. It was the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. So why are we boasting about Paul when Jesus loves us and gave himself for us? We weren't baptised into Paul's name. So what are you doing boast in Paul's name when your baptism is a sign not of union with Paul but of union with Jesus why baptize why boast in men when you have Christ what well, misplaced faith to focus on leaders that Jesus uses instead of the Jesus who uses the leaders i'll say that again because i think it's really quite important it's misplaced faith to focus on the leaders that Jesus uses rather than the Jesus who uses the leaders a biblical leader will point to Jesus. And this is the principle we need to learn to apply. Prideful boasting in parties and divisions that we create will shrivel and die when our boast is in Christ and him crucified, when he is all in all to us. Schism can't can't tear a church apart when its members know they're united to Christ and in him we're necessarily united to one another. Fight division, Paul says, by a superior pursuit of our Lord Jesus. And then Paul is the great model for us in this very thing. That's the point, verse 14 to 17. Having mentioned baptism, Paul backs up a little. He wants to make sure he speaks the truth. Paul baptised some of the Corinthians after all. He didn't baptise, but he baptised Crispus and Gaius, some of the household of Stephanus. No one can claim to be baptised into Paul's name since Paul hardly baptised any of them. And once he's got that straightened out, he says, and this is his guiding principle of life and ministry. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is the model of the principle he's calling to us to apply. And he presses it all the way through every facet of his ministry. He avoids a heavy emphasis on sacramental rites, baptism, and he avoids high-flown oratory and preaching because he doesn't want people focusing on him. He doesn't want people to say, well, Paul baptised me. You know, I'm a special person because I have a special relationship with Paul. Paul is allergic to that kind of thinking, and he's doing everything he can to ensure that when he does gospel ministry, that he draws people's attention to Jesus Christ. He rejects ostentatious ways of preaching. He rejects a heavily heavy weighted emphasis on sacraments. Because he doesn't want attention resting on the man or the minister, but on the message, on Christ himself. That's where the power lies, brothers and sisters. And as we go into a little summer break, that's where the power lies. Not in the preacher, but in Christ he preaches. Not in oratory or sacraments or liturgy or ritual or form. But in the Christ who meets us as we gather in His name, so let the good news about Jesus, what He has done for your soul in His love and grace, fill your gaze again, and you will find that ego begins to crumble, and with that, our divisions crumble as well. We find the level ground at the foot of the cross once again. You see, at the ground, at the cross, the ground is level. We see Jesus bearing the condemnation we all deserve. And we see that all of us are without hope, save in God's sovereign mercy. Wretched sinners deserving the wrath and the curse of God. There's nothing to boast there. And then we look at the cross and we see him in love pouring himself out for us. And because he did that, we are saved. He has done it all. So I take no glory to myself. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And as we fill our gaze with Jesus, ego dies, divisions, divisions crumble. Oh, may it be so. May it be so at Lake Road Chapel that we fill our gaze with Jesus, that we find level ground at the foot of the cross. Egos die, divisions crumble and Christ is glorified. Amen.